This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's a story that we brought to you, uh, I guess it was around the beginning of the summer now, and it had to do with the number of uh, unfounded sex assaults uh, that, uh, that, well, so let me put it this way, alleged sex assaults that were deemed to be unfounded, uh, that they were not pursuit of, and uh, Hamilton Police Service Board members are now looking forward to seeing a report on uh, the internal review of all sexual assault complaints that were classified as unfounded by police between 2010 and 2014. Uh, it's it's a rather controversial issue because there's some insinuation going back and forth, and maybe maybe people making some judgments about this stuff without getting the facts in front of them. But it's also rather disconcerting when you look at some of the numbers on this, too. Joining us to talk about this is Lenore LeCassick-Foss, director of uh, SASHA. That's the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. Now, first of all, Lenore, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, it's good to be back, Bill. We should mention, uh, just uh, so people are aware, you were actually sat on the committee that did the work on this, right? Well, uh, yeah, just so you know that that's the internal review is just with the police. Our review that involves community members It's coming up in November. Okay. Uh, talk to us, maybe give us some background for those that may not be totally familiar with this or maybe forgotten some of the details about uh, why this thing even had to happen, why this uh, this uh, internal review was done. Yeah, so um, folks might be familiar with, uh, there was a major Globe and Mail article that, or series of articles that have kind of come to be known as unfounded series. And basically it looked at across Canada, so not just even Ontario, but across Canada, I think they polled something like 800, over 800 police services and asked for their numbers of unfounded sexual assault cases and, and overall uh, sexual assault. And we're looking at, basically at your chances of being deemed an unfounded case. And just so your listeners understand, Bill, unfounded means that they don't believe that a sexual assault happened. So it's not that there's not enough evidence. It's not that there's, they can't proceed because they don't think there's a, you know, uh, they have a good chance of anything happening in the court case. It's just that they don't believe a sexual assault happened. So it looked at across the country what your chances are of being basically not believed by police if you stepped forward. And uh, they came out with an average, and then Hamilton had a 30% uh, unfounded rate according to the, the statistics that were submitted to the Globe and Mail. But you see, that's still a gray area for an awful lot of people. When they use that terminology, unfounded, you've just uh, defined the parameters that uh, that the, uh, the the review was using here. But there was an insinuation, I think, when this story first broke, though, Lenore, that unfounded basically meant the police didn't think they were going to get a conviction or that the, the, the evidence, quote-unquote, was rather tenuous and they just decided to let it go. Yeah, that's not because there's actually a classification for that that if they uh, don't believe that they have enough evidence, that is different than unfounded. Unfounded means it, it, that they don't believe this incident happened, that they don't think it happened. So it's very different than having not enough evidence to proceed. All right, but when you see these numbers, and, and you've seen the results, and you've seen the reaction uh, from people when these numbers first were published, I believe it was the Globe and Mail that first uh, did this, and other papers have picked it up since then. Yes. Uh, in as much as, yes, there are two different classifications, but people seem to mold those into one and say, you know what, this this is kind of get leading us toward the idea that, well, you know, women that lay charges or uh, that uh, that allege that assaults happened aren't going to be believed. Well, I, I think certainly we know that that is a reality. We know, so this is, you know, something I like to remind folks is that the Globe and Mail didn't discover uh, unfounded. So in our sector, in the sexual assault centers, rape crisis centers, we've been talking about this for like 20, 30 years, talking about the problem of unfounded, where people will go and just simply 
for a variety of reasons, not be believed that that nothing will happen, no further investigation will happen. So I think that this was not new for for folks in my world, we were aware of this, and I think many survivors are aware of this, which is why, not they, maybe not the exact language, but we know that many survivors uh, don't wish to go to police because they're afraid, for good reason, that they will not, um, that, that they will not be believed, um, or that uh, nothing will happen with the case or something, you know, or they will feel like it's, it's too embarrassing, I don't want to move forward. So there's a variety of reasons, but we know many, like 95% of survivors in Canada, according to research, do not report to police. Women and men do not report to police. Is that because they don't want to go through the hassle or because they don't think they're going to be believed? I think it's probably uh, a variety of reasons. So those two, including for sure that they don't, maybe don't want to go to the hassle, they're embarrassed, ashamed, they know what it's like to, they've seen things in the newspaper or on TV, um, and they're just concerned that they won't be believed or they'll be treated like they've done something wrong. Um, but So we do know that there's lots of uh, good officers out there. This isn't about individual officers. We know that there are good officers that are trying their best. This is about larger systems that are in place that, that mean that survivors are less likely to be, be believed. And, and we've seen examples of that, and, and sadly, you know, they, they've made the headlines to the, you know, the judge, why can't you keep your legs yes, closed, and, and situations yes. of that situation, which, which obviously is going to serve as, as, uh, as a detriment to anybody yes. who may want to come forward of this. It's interesting to note as well, though, that, uh, for instance, if somebody comes to you at Sasha. Uh, with some concerns like this, you don't encourage them to go to the police. You don't encourage them not to either. Exactly. So that's, that's again, thank you for raising that because sometimes people might be confused. So no, we are absolutely not going to tell them to go to police or not go to the police. We're going to lay out what the process is and let them make an informed choice. Um, so we definitely work with some survivors who are engaged with the criminal system and we will be there and support them. We work by far the majority of folks who come to us are not interested in pursuing that option for a variety of reasons, some of which we've discussed. So we, 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 we try to, our, our plan is that we give survivors the information and then they are allowed to make that choice and have that power. We're not going to make those decisions for them. What do you expect to get, or what do you hope to get, maybe, Lenore, out of this uh, out of this evaluation after this? You, you're going to pour over this stuff. These are going to be random, I guess. You can't look yeah. at every one of them, obviously. Yeah, because I think it was going to be like 700, because our review is from 2010 to 2016. The internal police review is just from till 2014. So ours is a few extra years, and that, I think, ended up being 700, about approximately 700 unfounded cases. So there would be no way for us to, to review all of those in any kind of detail at all and not have to move permanently into the police service station. So we're just doing a random sample um, and we're, we're hoping to just see if there's anything to be learned about things that could have been done differently, um, you know, about situations that could have been dealt with differently in this situation um, so that maybe there would have been a different outcome. Do you mean from a policing standpoint? Yes. Is it a staffing issue? Is it an attitudinal issue? I, I'm, I understand you haven't done the review yet, so I guess we're, we're really just uh, it's conjecture at this point. But, uh, but by the same token, I mean, you've, you've got a body of work over the number of years you've been doing this right now, too, so you must have some, some insight into this. So we, okay, so uh, 
you're right. We don't know what we're going to find until we go through the process. But we know our process is uh, based on something called the Philadelphia model. And Philadelphia in the States, of course, um, they were they had an extremely high rate of unfounded um, in their police service. And so they uh, came about with a plan which brings in external reviewers, so not people who are from the police, but community experts on sexual assault and domestic violence, bring them in to review. And that really changed the rates of unfounded in that service. And how so? It, how so? Uh, it dropped quite dramatically. So the idea of this kind of review is that it's not one-off, that you do it yearly so that your community advocate experts come back every year or sometimes twice a year so it's less volume and just review all the unfounded cases um, just to make sure that, oh, could we do something different? Oh, did you know, maybe you missed something here because sometimes what we know uh, and we're learning more and more about the neurobiology of trauma is that the way memory works after a traumatic situation um, means that sometimes the way a survivor might describe what happened is not in a kind of linear or straightforward way and it might seem to some who don't know about this that are they making this up? Is there are there details missing? Is this real? So we we're learning a lot more about the way these kinds of um, narratives will be told. That doesn't mean someone's not telling the truth. And so I think we're we're hoping to see a change in our unfounded rate in Hamilton. And but we've seen this with some of the high profile cases where uh, you know th- some of the uh, the alleged victims have been cross examined in some cases and. And, and obviously their credibility has been attacked because yes. they may forget this or forget what yes. color were they wearing, what color was yes. it, et cetera, et cetera. We know from a psychological standpoint, from the information we've received, that that's not uncommon in situations uncommon. like that. But yeah. how does that impact a possible investigation then? Because, I mean, if, 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 if the alleged victim says, I, I don't remember where we were, I don't remember what was said, uh, what are police supposed to do in a situation like that? Well, I think they... Is, is that one of those gaps? Uh, it could be a gap, or it could be, are there any uh, wit- possible witnesses? Are there um, videotapes that are being pulled or not being pulled? Um, are, you know, so I think there are other investigative tools we want to make sure that all those things have been exhausted. And there's also like even research uh, that helps us understand when you question a victim so that right away, immediately after an assault, as soon as possible, may not be the best time because her memories have not consolidated. Um, and I say her just because that's most commonly women, but we also know it happens to men. So um, there are, we are learning more about how to do investigations that what we might call trauma-informed, so that are aware of the way that trauma impacts uh, a survivor. And also that the way a survivor might present to the police, she might not be upset, and that doesn't mean nothing happened. So that there, she, or she might be very, very upset. So I think that there's, we're trying to just really um, have that awareness grow within the service and, and, and that, that might influence the way we support survivors. But when you mentioned the, the Philadelphia model, which, uh, as you say, many people are using as, as uh, the, the standard at this stage right now, yes. or at least a starting point for it anyway, and you said uh, with that work by that body, of, 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 that all of a sudden the number of unfounded cases dropped, 
that that tells me that maybe there are some gaps in in the investigative process right yeah. now yeah. Uh, that maybe could have been filled in had things been done differently uh, which which again I don't know if it's staffing or if it's attitudinal is 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 what you're going to do going to be that prescriptive that you can come back with some recommendations um again we we will see when we get in there but yes the idea is that the committee will form recommendations based on what they see and um and yeah, we'll be looking, and we're, we're very lucky to be working with someone who has expertise on this uh, model. It's called the Victim Advocate Case Review, um, and so we'll—that's our Canadian version of the Philadelphia model. And so we'll be working with someone who has some expertise who will help us with this. And yeah, then we'll we'll see what we see, and then we'll be able to make recommendations. The Ottawa situation, you mentioned this is going on in other cities as yes, well. They they struck a similar panel. My understanding is that they've kept that panel together as, as kind of an oversight for some of these, uh, I guess, cases as they come up. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting we go down that road, but it, it is a possible action here. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I, I actually, that's one of my hopes, is that the idea of just reviewing this one-off is not the model. The model is that you have an ongoing uh, that yearly, uh, or again, you can do it by you know every six months just to make the load a bit easier. That you ha- are having this community uh, panel come and review the unfounded, so that if any change can happen, we can respond quickly in our community. Um, so no, I think that that's certainly what what we know from best practice. That is the way to go. There's a, I guess, another perception here that we need to deal with uh, because when we hear about that in the Philadelphia situation. And all of a sudden, when there's citizen oversight that the number of unfounded cases drops, uh, some might extrapolate from that that, well, it means cops aren't doing the job. Maybe there's an attitude problem. Maybe uh, it could well be simply staffing. It could be training. Uh, And and, and I don't want to point the finger at anybody at this stage right now. It's a number that we found, uh, I think, uncomfortable and and alarming to a certain extent. And we want to do something about it. But I'm not exactly sure if we can actually... Uh, maybe not even a portion blame, but I said try to uh, identify exactly where the shortcomings are. Well, I think we, we certainly know from, uh, so not just this process, but from research, that there are systemic problems and that we see that not just with police, so you've got to be really clear, we're seeing it in the, the judicial system. You know, you made a mention of Justice Rob, Robin Camp talking about, you know, if he didn't want to get raped, you should have just put your legs together. So some real um, attitudes that are, um, harmful, extremely harmful to victims, um, and also just some misinformation. So people not understanding, like I mentioned, the way that trauma affects memory. So they might, you know, get a person on the stand and think because they can't remember the the color of the car that they're making this up. So we are we're seeing that within our system, the criminal system, there is a lot of um, misinformation or myths or stereotypes about sexual assault victims that are incorrect. So we are needing um, to educate to change those attitudes and biases. And we're also just needing, you know, uh, to look at how are the police systems in general treating survivors. Because we know, as I mentioned earlier, there are many, many, many officers um, who are doing an excellent job and that want to do well and want to help. I guess what this is a wake-up call, really, isn't it, to, to suggest that maybe we're, we're not as progressive and haven't gone as far down this road as we thought we had? Yeah, so it's, so it's not a wake-up call to survivors or are those in this work because we've known this situation for a Absolutely. long time. Yeah. But it is probably a broad wake-up generally to our communities to say, 
you know, what we've been talking about is actually now we're seeing these black and white, you know, numbers on the page and or on the screen, and it's really, uh, it's, it's stark, and we have to do something. It's important stuff. Uh, Lenore, we'll stay in touch as this uh, unfolds over the next couple of months. Thanks oh, so much yeah, for this today. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk again about it. Thank you so much. You can bet on that. Thanks Bye-bye. again. Take care. Lenore Lekasek-Foss, uh, Director of the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and the uh, city seems pretty adamant uh, and, and intent on going after this bid for Amazon. Uh, you know the story now. Amazon, of course, said that they want to have another North American office uh, besides their home base in Seattle, Washington. And uh, they say North America. Well, of course, that perked up the ears in an awful lot of cities, uh, even on this side of the border, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, London, Ontario. I think Halifax has uh, expressed some interest, but so has the city of Hamilton. Well, uh, the you know, overriding question, I guess, initially anyway, is how much is the city willing to spend to put a bid together to try to entice Amazon to come here for their second headquarters. Let's ask Chris Murray. He is the city manager, of course, for the city of Hamilton. Chris, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks very much, Bill. Great to be here. Well, listen, let's let's get right to the bottom line here, because some people are saying, Hamilton, Amazon, are you kidding? Uh, talk to us about why you want to pursue this and why you think it's worthwhile. Well, as you know, Bill, the uh, news of this uh, unfolded just in the recent days, actually, about uh, just over a week ago. And uh, we know Amazon is uh, looking to uh, find, as you say, a second headquarters somewhere in North America to uh, to uh, support 50,000 workers. Um, and certainly Southern Ontario is, is on its radar. In particular, it's mentioned uh, in a number of reports, Toronto. Um, but, you know, when, when you look at uh, what's happening um, in southern Ontario, uh, a lot of the growth, both population and employment, that's going to occur over the next uh, two decades is actually shifting west of Toronto. And, uh, and that's, that's one point. I guess the second point here, too, is, is that, um, you know, we got to stop thinking in terms of just municipalities and start thinking about regional economies. And Southern Ontario's regional economy is uh, is very robust, and uh, there's a good reason why uh, you know tech companies are starting to find their way to Southern Ontario. And um, and as much as I know, uh, you know, people in the states uh, often think about Toronto. I think people in Southern Ontario increasingly are thinking about Hamilton uh, as a place to uh, to move their family and to live. So you know, to suggest that that uh, a tech giant like Amazon uh, wouldn't want an excellent quality of life for its workers um, and wouldn't want to have direct access to uh, the kinds of transportation uh, modes that we have access to, plus uh, educational institutions. Again, not just here in Hamilton, but again, remember, we're one hour away from eight universities, uh, and certainly Toronto has a lot to offer educationally, and so does uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, but you know our own university here in, in town uh, should be given, uh, you know, important uh, consideration as well. So, again, I look at this from the standpoint of where Hamilton is positioned in terms of the future growth, and I think in terms of what it is that we have to offer in the way of a quality of life. And if you start to peel this back and look at exactly what Amazon has in Seattle, you know, they're interested in being in, you know, in the mix of things in a downtown that is uh, vibrant and moving. And uh, I can't help but think of the Toronto Life magazine that you saw uh, in recent weeks that uh, talked about the, you know, Toronto's hot spot is in fact Hamilton. So 
there's a bunch of good reasons why we should take this seriously. Uh, I know the federal government is. I know the provincial government is. And Hamilton, I think, needs to, uh, you know, um, consider itself uh, a legitimate player. I don't think you have to sell too many people in Hamilton uh, about how great Hamilton is and the renaissance that's gone on here. I guess we're, we're living it. We're seeing this. But but where are we on everybody else's radar, Chris? And I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, you're a hockey fan, and you know that there have been a couple of times that Hamilton has, has made some sincere bids, and I think some legitimate bids for the National Hockey League. Uh, Jim Balsillie obviously was behind a couple of those. Uh, and there was a lot of money. There was a lot of everything else. But the reaction seemed to be, not, not just from the NHL Board of Governors, but from the NHL community was Hamilton. Are you kidding? Where's that? What's that? Is oh, it's close to Toronto, uh, and which was insulting. But it, it speaks, I think, volumes about the NHL and their mindset. But what about the business world? I mean, are we going to get that same attitude there, where we're just not considered to be in league with some of these other cities? Okay. Well, first of all, if you want to use the NHL as a as a uh, an analogy or a metaphor for this current situation. You know, let's let's be clear. Uh, one thing is certain about the NHL is that its board of governors, which is made up of billionaires, at the end of the day, the billionaires decide where they want to uh, expand the league or not. Uh, you know, no amount of us, um, uh, you know, forcing our way into their boardroom is going to uh, affect uh, how they see things. But I think you know, Hamilton, uh, in terms of any any kind of NHL or any kind of major corporate. Uh, opportunity. We need to make sure that people understand the facts about Hamilton. We're not going to be able to uh, barge our way in and just say we're great and you ought to believe us. We just have to, I think, fundamentally demonstrate what it is that we have to offer and let the people who are going to make decisions make decisions. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, you know, we have a lot of strengths, a lot of assets that are growing in interest, uh, and that's a fact. And, uh, you know, we have major institutions here that are quite successful. That's a fact. You know, we have a housing market that is the envy of those that are, are in Toronto wanting to come here. We're connected to our large interregional transportation system. You know, we have short sea shipping. We have an international airport that's one of the largest in moving cargo. You know, we are in the midst of the tech hub. So, you know, I, I look at all of that and I go, I just want to present facts. Um, and let uh, the decision makers, uh, whether it be Amazon or whomever, uh, understand you know what it is. It's not about hype. It's just about fact. No, I understand that. And, and but the, the problem is this. I think. I mean, if you ever get to the point hypothetically where they say, "Okay, City of Hamilton, you've got 15 minutes uh, in front of the board of directors here for Amazon. If you have to spend seven or ten minutes of them telling who we are." Uh, that that's wasted opportunity. I mean, do they know any of this stuff yet? That's the point I'm trying to make here right now. Do you have enough time to educate them and then win them over? That that's a that's a rather daunting task. Well, you know, and, and I guess you know the question is is uh, do they know us? Uh, I would suspect not yet. Uh, you know, and I would say there are, but you know, let's ask yourself the question. You know, uh, certainly BlackBerry and Kitchener Waterloo did a lot to improve their fortunes. Uh, I was talking to the CAO of Kitchener Waterloo, and maybe people don't realize, but Waterloo produces, uh, I think, the second most uh, workers for Amazon. I mean, their 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 uh, tech uh, uh, programs and their uh, engineering programs are uh, sought after. Um, so, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, uh, Waterloo is is obviously in very close proximity to Hamilton. Um, 
so, you know, I, I think, you know, getting ourselves on the radar uh, is important, uh, not just for the Amazons, but, uh, you know, for other companies that might be uh, thinking about Hamilton. As I know, there's uh, certainly some interest in, in uh, you know, from Del Toro in terms of making investments in Hamilton, you know, on a large scale in terms of the the, uh, uh, the movie industry. I mean, that's that's a good thing. Think Bill, 10 years ago, the kinds of people that were knocking on our door versus the ones that are knocking on our door now. And uh, rather than waiting, I think we have to be maybe a bit more aggressive in making sure that, uh, you know, industries, certainly tech industries, are aware of where Hamilton is and what we have to offer. But but again, like I say, if, if it was Ottawa that's already developed some tech, if it was KW, they know of that. They, they get that. And and I'm not so sure that we're even on the map right now. And and, and I'm just trying to be realistic about this. Look, again, I'll be the yeah. first. I, I, I hope you're successful. I think it would be fabulous. But it's uh, it's you're, if you do, you're going to come from way back in the back of the pack here to do this. And I don't know if there's enough time or resources to do this. So let's talk about those resources. Uh, as of now, you have a budget of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's 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 your spending limit, I guess, for do, pursuing something like this. Uh, you suggested it could take more. What are you going to have to spend money on, and how do you decide a strategy, Chris? I mean, for a, a team like Team Hamilton you're, that you're developing here, that's got such a, a long, long uh, way to go here to try to get their attention and try to to get them to think, hey, we're a viable option here. Well. So I, let's, I guess, start with the following. The um, the fact that this has come on as quickly as it's come on, typically what we do is, uh, you know, we write a report to a council, we explain what the opportunity is, uh, and then we, you know, we outline in, in some detail as to uh, why it would make sense to move forward or not. We don't obviously have uh, enough time to be able to prepare that report. And right now we are all internally... Uh, assessing the uh, the complexity of this RFP and what kinds of skills are going to be necessary in order to land one of the world's largest uh, tech uh, commercial retail giants. Uh, and so, obviously, uh, to try and land a five billion dollar company that is uh, you know uh, that is uh, focused in the uh, in the tech industry, you know, we'd have to see. Uh, who it is out there in our in our uh, consulting world that would be able to assist with that kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, submission? So right now we're taking stock of uh, what we have and what we don't have uh, uh, in order to figure out what kind of additional skills we'd have to add to our team. Uh, and obviously we're talking to Queens Park uh, about what effort they're making in terms of uh, putting the best provincial phase forward to understand. Uh, what support might be available from them. Um, and obviously the federal government, we're learning more about uh, what it is that uh, Canada is going to do in order to support municipalities across the country. So I can certainly say that, uh, you know, internal staff right now are who are working on this. Uh, we're assessing, you know, our ability to compete. Uh, we're looking at what kinds of gaps we might have in order to be competitive. And so, you know, as you can imagine, I'll be meeting with senior staff on this, uh, as, as we have been over the weekend, uh, as well as updating the mayor in terms of, you know, where we are and where we might be going. But so, you know, important to say that, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of consideration going on right now. But to that point, though, about federal and provincial assistance, uh, if in fact uh, that's forthcoming, uh, that's going to be pretty generic at this stage, because if you've got other Ontario and other Canadian cities, for that matter, that are showing interest in this, they're not going to favor one city over another at this point. 
Well, I mean, we're going to find out about all of that. I mean, there already have been some calls. I think it was mentioned last Wednesday that uh, Ed Clark and I have been in contact, and we remain in contact. Um, you're right. I mean, how generic uh, that support is is what we're trying to understand from uh, from the province. Uh, but let's just take a step back just for one second. And, uh, you know, what, what I think is really uh, remarkable about what's going on is that uh, I'm hard-pressed to think of a time when the federal, provincial, and municipal governments have all been aligned in thinking about what would it take to land, you know, a giant like this. So it, it's obviously got all of our collective attention, which is a really good thing. Um, it's starting to really highlight, I think, the need for, you know, regional economic development strategies. Uh, the fact that municipalities are reacting, and that's good, they should be reacting to something like this, you know, is starting to illuminate something which is really important, is just how aligned are we federally, provincially, and locally when it comes to, you know, going after certain uh, aspects of, uh, of, the, uh, of the economy. And so, you know, we're learning, I think, something right now that uh, will benefit us, whether or not Amazon lands in southern Ontario. Um, it really is highlighting a need for us to uh, be, I think, a lot more strategic, a lot more proactive, uh, in the way in which we market uh, Ontario. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, Queen's Park, I guarantee you, knows a lot about Hamilton. I think uh, this exercise is going to help us, um, you know, further explain the, the real strengths that we have to offer, uh, not in generic terms, but certainly in, in specifics, uh, because I'm not always convinced that, uh, um, you know, people really know uh, what's in Hamilton and what Hamilton can do. A couple of quick things, though, Chris, and I want to talk about the realities here, because you and I have had discussions in the past about trying to uh, lure businesses uh, for expansion purposes, et cetera, this, and it's a daunting task, because you've got many states down in the southern states in particular that will give everything. I mean, they'll give free land, they'll give 10 years tax-free uh, incentives, and they'll build the infrastructure to try to entice that. That's one element, and second, and maybe even more importantly is, you got a president in the White House right now who's going to the U.N. tomorrow to talk about his America First policy. Uh, and, and what is Amazon risking if they decide they thumb their nose at Donald Trump and say, now we're not even going to build in America? Uh, it sounds like you've got strike one and strike two against you get before you guys even get to, out of the gate here. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting you raise all of that, uh, Bill. Um, and then the, I think equally there are people that want to work in, in parts of the world where they're welcomed. Uh, where there's health care, uh, where there's a quality of life that uh, not just they but their families can enjoy, education systems that are second really to none. Um, you know, so for all the protectionist thinking and all the you know, unwelcoming commentary that we're hearing south of the border, you know, you got to remember these people that work for Amazon uh, want to have wonderful lives and they want to be free and they want to be able to uh, uh, enjoy things that... Canadians, I think, oftentimes take for granted. So, um, yes, I mean, you know, and, and what's happening in the States, you know, like everything else, this too will pass. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's better to be a welcoming community, uh, one that is aggressive in terms of trying to attract uh, businesses like Amazon. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I would hope that the CEO of Amazon would be thinking about his workers and their needs, and I suspect he is. Quickly, I got a couple of minutes left here, but to that point, though, uh, as an Ontario city, uh, you can't bonus, you can't give away free land, you can't give away uh, ten years of tax-free exemptions, et cetera, et cetera, like many American cities can do. That'll be going after that. 
What can you offer in the way of incentives uh, besides lifestyle or quality of life uh, to entice them to come up here? I mean, make uh, that that's quality of life, which is important. I get that. But also, you've got to present a business case here, too. Right. And, I mean, you look at something like Amazon and the uh, the amount of uh, engineering, for example, uh, workers that they're going to require over the next decade. Uh, certainly, you know, the expectation will be that the province will be able to support uh, the universities in generating uh, enough employees to uh, support that appetite. And to your point, uh, by the way, the uh, the province can offer incentives, even though the city can't. So if you get them on side, that's that's a plus on your side of the ledger. That's that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we do have, uh, you know, uh, like for example, in our downtown, you know, we uh, you know we have done things to try and entice more. Uh, uh, you know, more development. I mean, we've looked at the development charges and uh, we've waived them, uh, and now we're bringing them back because we're seeing the economy in the downtown move forward. Um, so there are things that we can do in terms of, uh, we have something called an erase program, which uh, supports people that want to invest in uh, brownfields. Uh, in fact, Hamilton is a leader in the province on that. So there's, yeah, we don't have the kind of uh, blank check uh, uh, ability that, uh, you know, some of the U.S. cities have. Uh, but I, I kind of like what Ed Clark said the other day, I think it was in the Toronto Star, in, in that, uh, you know, we will not, uh, uh, we will not uh, utilize those uh, tools to uh, crassly buy this company into, uh, into Ontario, and that, uh, you know, but we have other things that, uh, you know, any business leader would uh, would take seriously, and that is, you know, a, a labor force that is highly respected across the globe, um, and as the, we've been pointing out, a, a quality of life that I think is the envy of many. Well, uh, if past history is any indication, I mean, nobody thought Hamilton had a chance to landing Franhofer, and you know they're setting up shop right across the road from us here now. Uh, that was supposed to go to someplace else in the world as well. So I, I never say never, I guess, Chris. Uh, good luck with this. Uh, we'll follow the progress on this uh, very, very intently as we go on. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Thanks, Bill. Chris Murray, City Manager for the City of Hamilton. They're going after Amazon, and uh, we wish them all the best. Uh, they've got a huge, huge task ahead of them. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. NDP leadership hopefuls were in town this past weekend at the convention center in downtown Hamilton, making their final pitches to members to show what they are and who they are and why they should be the next leader of the federal NDP party. They Actually, the delegates start voting today. It's going to take a couple of weeks for the uh, first ballot to be uh, finished up. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Henry Jasek, professor of political science, of course, at McMaster University. Henry, Henry how are you doing today? Just great, Bill. This is a halcyon time for guys like you in the poli-sci business. you got a leadership convention going on. I had another one just a few months ago. Uh, Parliament's back in session today. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on and a lot of action right now. But let's, let's talk a little bit about where the NDP are right now and what happened this past weekend. This has been a rather interesting race with some rather interesting personalities. Yeah, it, there, is a, there is a wide variety here of people who are making different sort of pitches. It's not so much on the policy side. It's more uh, what they stand for and who they're likely to appeal to. So you've got uh, people, you know, you've got four different people. You've you got... Uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's supposed to be the leader, and he appeals, I think, to uh, southern Ontario, plus out in the west, Alberta and, and British Columbia. We have a northern candidate in Charlie Angus, Nikki Ashton, uh, northern Manitoba, will I'm sure 
uh, appeal to many of the uh, female members of the um, of the NDP uh, and maybe some of the northern people out in the west. Uh, yeah, and then we have a and uh, a candidate Guy Caron in uh, Guy Caron in, uh, in in Quebec who says we have to we have to be strong. They NDP has to be strong in, in Quebec if they're going to form the government. How would you characterize these folks? As you mentioned, they they all bring something different to the party. Right. Uh, excuse the the bad metaphor there, Henry. But yeah, okay. <laughs> but but the different aspects of the party right now. Yet all of them seem to be str- uh, strengthening or, or accenting about. Uh, I think the term they all used uh, variations on the theme anyway was uh, grassroots politics, uh, which is is kind of the mantra of the NDP. Well, I think they're trying to emphasize that they thought that uh, you know Justin Trudeau uh, essentially was. Uh, and many of the leaders, many of the people in his candidate never served at the local level. They came in, many of them were young, of course, but many of them uh, were not traditionally people you'd expect to see in a federal cabinet, people who had served their time at the local level in retail politics, maybe at the provincial level. And, uh, and they're going to, I think the NDP is going to try to make an argument that the uh, party up there, uh, the cabinet is, is, is uh, you know, somewhat removed from, you know, from people and the grassroots because they didn't, you know, they weren't in the trenches uh, early on in their careers and they're sort of starting at the top of the pyramid. Let me ask you something, though. A number of them yesterday talked about, well, issues that are, for lack of a better expression, near and dear to the NDP. They talked about things like voter reform right. uh, and, and reaching out to, to indigenous peoples and, and all worthy causes. Yeah. Uh, but the reality, I guess we have to ask ourselves, with is that's going to score points with, I guess, the people that were at the convention center yesterday. But are those the issues at a national level that people are interested in? Well, I think with all parties, certainly includes the NDP as well, is that they, they, you know, when you're running for the nomination of the party, essentially you discuss the issues that you think your party members are going to uh, support that they're interested in, and the and the party membership who will be voting in this conve- uh, you know, for these leaders are are a small fraction of the voters in the country. And then, of course, now once you've won there, then you sort of fashion yourself to sort of figure out where am I going to fit in terms of uh, where the. Um, uh, the people are who are going to vote in the next election, and you'll and they'll start talking about other issues. We'll add to them. It's not so much you'll repudiate the issues that you have, but you sort of number of them will be downgraded into minor issues by the time you, uh, election day comes around. There's always going to be discussion with any party, I guess, Henry, when uh, there's a, a leadership race about where that next leader is going to take the party, if at all, uh, right. take them in a different direction. Uh, the expectation for Tom Mulcair was was great, obviously, because of what Jack Layton had done right. with the party. Uh, didn't quite work out the way they wanted. Actually, well, it, it did, until, I guess, until the last federal election, anyway. Uh, and and now you've got people that seem to be indicating that they want to go back to their roots. I mean, uh, you know, Charlie Angus is uh, he's the old grizzled veteran, I guess, right, who's right. basically going to say, you know, we have to be what the NDP have always been. But you know that there's always been, because you and I have talked about this in the past, there's always been a push to try to move the NDP forward, uh, like Tony Blair did with the Labour Party in, in, in the UK some years ago. And that's the key to, to national victory. It, 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 is that mindset still prevalent, or are they simply going to stay with what they've got? Well, I think it depends on who, who, who wins the leadership. You're right about Charlie Angus. And two new Democrats, he's very attractive because he's a believer in the old issues, uh, a good stalwart, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he 
talks about not so much the grassroots, but the NDP roots. And uh, a lot of people like that. But I think there's a lot of new Democrats who say, we respect Charlie Angus, but he's not going to have the reach. He's not going to have the appeal to pull the NDP out of third place. That That's what a lot of people are thinking. They're looking about who's going to pull them out of third place. Of course, in Quebec, uh, the argument about Quebec uh, is that uh, you need somebody from Quebec who is going to recover what Jack Layton did in 2011. Well, but the candidate from Quebec is not Jack Layton, and it's unclear whether he could do it. We had, I mean, the NDP had a, uh, an, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a person from Quebec, a very, a very attractive candidate from Quebec, but who simply couldn't keep up with Justin Trudeau, whose roots in Quebec were as strong or as not stronger than the NDP. So I think, uh, yeah, so it, it's just what you want to, you know, it, it, I just think a lot of these voters are going to say, we want to at least get back to official opposition. Who's going to win us the seats so at least we could get into second place, if not form the government? And it wouldn't be a leadership without some controversy, of course, and, uh, and that right now is the, the comments of uh, Pierre Nantel, uh, who is one of the uh, the Quebec NDP uh, delegates, actually, and a, and a prominent member of that wing of the party, who made what some people consider some rather disparaging comments about Singh, suggesting that, well, he wears a turban and people in Quebec are never going to support somebody like that. Uh, now, Caron turned that around and said there's always room for a man like Singh in the NDP, but nonetheless, is it, it, does that open a wound? Well, the, certainly there is a strain, particularly people who are, uh, you know, who flirt between... The, le- uh, the left wing of the NDP and the nationalist side of, uh, of Quebec politics. And there's no doubt that, you know, when you get into those uh, smaller cities and towns and the rural areas, uh, somebody, uh, you know, somebody who is a new immigrant and represents, of course, or, or represents new immigrants uh, visually and who comes from South Asia, yeah, that's going to be, you know, they, there's always, uh, you know, concern by those people. But I have a feeling the people in Quebec, particularly in the cities, but I don't, but I also think maybe even those areas, I think they now realize things are changing. And essentially, I mean, uh, Jagmeet Singh is a very urbane, um, you know, his behavior is a very almost conservative mainstream behavior, not necessarily his positions, but certainly, may, I mean, he oh, dresses in that three-piece suit all the time. He's a lawyer. He's a very articulate in English. Uh, you know, he's, 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 very impre- he's very impressive at the personal level. I happen to know him, so I interacted with him at the personal level, and I think he, he does well when he's speaking. Well, he scores well with charisma, doesn't he? He does. I mean, he's good in the legislature. He's good on the podium. He's good one-to-one. Uh, I have a feeling that attitudes, you know, he, he doesn't fit the sort of image that I think a lot of these people who might have a concern in Quebec, in small-town Quebec, uh, their concern about the new immigrants, he doesn't fit the image. He's, he's not, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't act and look like the stereotype I think they have in their heads. And I just think that comments, you know, uh, which which many of us, of course, would find uh, unfortunate, but uh, it also doesn't reflect, I think, reality of uh, of what he, Jagmeet Singh is in is and how he's likely to be received by the people in Quebec. So I don't think I think he's you know if he becomes the leader uh, of the party, I bet they're going to do better than they expect in Quebec. Uh, is he ready for prime time though? I know he's he's served time in the Ontario Legislature, and of course he's very well known in in, in law circles, of course, yeah. in the Brampton area. But uh, you know, this seems to be like a, 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 a you know a skyrocketing rise to the top. If in fact he's going to be successful in this endeavor right now, 
and you juxtapose that with somebody like a, a, a Charlie Angus and, and even Caron to a certain extent Caron. that have been there for a long time. And there's there's always there's always that mindset with some of these people and delegates at all these conventions or even, you know, doing the online voting as they are here, Henry, to say, well, you know what, we kind of owe it to Charlie or because, you know, they've been there through thick and thin as opposed to a rising star. Well, I think you're. I think there's a lot of people thought that way. I think there's a lot of people at the beginning of this campaign thought they were going to support Charlie Angus, uh, but I think they're having a lot of second thoughts now because the more they look at Jagmeet Singh and the, and how he presents himself and the opportunities that he offers for the party, I think that there are quite a few people who've changed their mind. It's hard to know how many. You know, it's always very difficult to do a good survey of people who are going to vote in the leadership race, and they're very hard to predict because of that. So, but I know there's, there's, there are a bunch of people who think that, uh, you know, have made that, you know, you know, that movement away from Charlie Angus saying, listen, I really like the guy. I respect him. I, I, I like all the things that he's done and he's really earns our respect. But you hit a point where you say, we got to go with the best option. I mean, in terms of younger, uh, more ur- urbane, re- uh, you know, attractive to all these uh, new immigrants showing that even a, a relative, a, People, somebody who's part of this new immigration wave can be a national leader. I just think they're, you know, I think, I think peop, a lot of people have moved to that in the NDP, and uh, I think probably quite rightly, it's nice to think that he is the uh, the the front runner. But you know, it's hard to tell because we don't have a good survey. We'll we'll know when the results, the first results come out. But uh, he certainly is, you know, I, you know, he he's the most different, and he's dynamic and you know, articulate. You know, well educated. You know, he just, he just, he, and he looks to be, you know, just visually, he looks to be an attractive candidate. Henry, you track patterns like this all the years you've been following these sorts of things, and and is are they going to follow the move that the other major political parties have done? I mean, Justin Trudeau, it's pretty self-evident. Obviously, yeah. young, dynamic, uh, charismatic individual. Uh, the the conservatives opted for Andrew Scheer. Uh, again, a young candidate, uh, notwithstanding the politics, etc., but a younger candidate. In other words, new blood. Uh, are the NDP thinking that way, too, thinking that that's the next wave? That's that's where pol- politics is going. And if that's the case, then you're right. I mean, Jagmeet Singh, and, and maybe you could put it Nikki Ashton in there to a certain sure, extent, sure. although she'd be behind Singh, I think, at the stage, too. But are they going into their voting, which starts today, with that notion that we've got to start thinking younger? Well, I think if you look at a lot of people who get become leaders, uh, not only in Canada but other places, a, a lot of them sort of may reach the top in their 40s. Uh, you know, uh, large numbers. I and mean, you look at just look at people when they first became, you know, you know uh, the leaders of their countries, and you have to sort of refresh themselves, fresh your minds, whether it's in Canada. Or, or in other countries, uh, I can remember all when I was young, much much younger. All the and I was in the states, and all the jokes about John Kennedy. What what is John Kennedy going to do when he grows up? Well, he was and he was forty three when he became president. But there were so many people in the U.S. thought he was way too young, and I think that's true. You know, there's just a lot of people who 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 come in their 40s uh the premier uh the premier uh, the president of France is another example yeah. uh you know and the, and people just turn to him uh, i mean i don't think anybody once they re- person reaches their 40s i you'd have to say you know they they have they're very likely to be pretty mature people at that point and then you just look at their qualifications and who they appeal to but i don't you know i i i i, I I mean, although I'm much younger than these folks, I don't look at forty people in their forties as being too young. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 
I have. <laughs> I, I hope they respect the old folks. But I think, uh, like myself, but I do think that uh, people, leaders in their forties, you know, are there's nothing wrong with that. I think this is going to be a one-ballot victory. It's going to be about two weeks, I guess, uh, because of the online voting that's going to be taking place right now. This, by the way, is ranked balloting, uh, which was right. uh, the the uh, the, valid, the balloting system that the the liberals and Justin Trudeau had tried to uh, impose for the next federal election. It didn't work out the way they wanted, right. but the NDP are going to try this, and uh, I, I guess this will serve as a template for this right now. But uh, we'll find out in two weeks, I guess the first part of October. Is, uh, is Singh the runaway leader at this stage in your mind? Well, I, I, I think he has the momentum, because everybody talks about him being the leader, so I assume he is. As I said, we don't really have good evidence and surveys to tell you, because we really don't know the character, you know, the mindset, a representative mindset of the people who are actually going to vote. But, you know, I, I think he is the, he's added some, he added a lot of spice to this race, and I do think as people have looked at him, even though they might have been committed to some other candidates, particularly Charlie Angus, I think he really is eaten into, I think, the people who are going to support Charlie Angus. And it's because, and essentially, the Ontario, I think, you know, there's going to be a very solid uh, turnout of Ontario people for for Jagmeet Singh. The other element, too, that they always say when somebody's got a big lead like Singh appears to have at this stage, that, well, it's his to lose. In other words, he's going to win this unless he does something dumb to, to cause him. He hasn't done anything, really, in that regard. Has he to actually hurt his chances? No, I, I don't think he has. And knowing him, and as I said, knowing him personally, watching him in the legislature, hearing him give speeches, he's not the type of person who makes mistakes. He's very mature. And you, you can see some people fall into it and they make mistakes. He's not the, He's very sure-footed very sure-footed he has a good idea of of you know of 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 basically how how to look professional and how to look like he's on top of his game all the time and uh, that's why i say when people look at him over time you you start to really i think really do become impressed with him it's an interesting dynamic and a changing dynamic i guess on the federal scene henry thanks as always for your perspective great talking with you today okay good talking with you bill take Bye-bye. care henry jason of course political science professor at McMaster university the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml